Hey, everybody, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly here with an episode of the show that I think I'm going to call Mock Plays the Piano. That is not just the name of the episode. That is the actual name given to Gwendolyn Mock by her parents when she was still in utero. And what do you know? The prophecy was self-fulfilling. Gwen started playing the piano as soon as she was big enough to reach the keyboard, and she hasn't stopped since. Today, she is a respected and highly accomplished pianist, as well as a teacher, uh, though the word pianist doesn't quite tell the whole story. I really think of myself as a medium. I don't think of myself as anything but. You know, it's my job is to understand to the best of my ability what the composer wants. For Gwen, knowing what the composer wants has meant not only deeply engaging with the music of people like Beethoven and Brahms and Mendelssohn and Saint-Saëns and uh, most notably Ravel, but also with their lives and their times and the very instruments they knew best. And by that, I mean the vintage pianos that they played and wrote for. Pianos that sound quite distinct from the modern versions that we're used to hearing these days. Gwen Mock has uh, access to a great collection of historic pianos at San Jose State University, where she teaches. And uh, I was lucky enough to hear her play some of those keyboards during the interview. In fact, you too will be so lucky if you keep listening. As we started our conversation, we were interrupted by the sound of musicians there at the San Jose State School of Music and Dance, uh, practicing their instruments in nearby studios. And I mentioned to Gwen that that sound of musicians practicing is one I've always been really fond of. I think it's great. It's creativity being practiced. Yeah, yeah. And the, the mistakes, you know, the faltering, all of that is part of the beautiful texture of it, you know? It's the process of mastery. That's what we're hearing. And some will never get there? Yep. Some do? Oh, yeah. You can tell by how they're practicing if they're ever going to get there. Really? Oh, what, yeah. What can you tell from hearing people practice? Um, I can hear if they're analytical or methodical or if they have discipline. I can tell if their brain is on or off. Um, I can tell if they're accomplishing anything. Lots of times I just walk up and down the hallway and listen to my students practice, and they get really creeped out by it. <laughs> some of them sometimes, like, stand outside and, like, oh, my God, she's coming down the hallway. Outside. <laughs> What do you hear that gives you those clues? Um, You know, I have this really funny theory that you're going to think I'm crazy, but I know if I'm going to want to play a concert with someone by the way they eat their dinner. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So if you're sitting across somebody and they're just shoveling the food down their throat, I'm not going to want to make a concert with that guy or a girl. (laughs) I'm just going to say, forget it. You know, I, I just don't think I'm available. I'm too expensive. If somebody is really eating and enjoying the food and, and talking about it and enjoying the conversation and, you know, we, we go off onto discussions about the cooking and, you know, wow, this is really great the way they marinated it and this is amazing. You know, it's like, to me, that is the kind of artist I'd like to work with. So the same thing holds true with my students. It's like if they're practicing like da 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 so no playing scales just to get your chops down? Oh, no. Scales are the foundation of anyone's technique, whether you be a pianist, a violinist, singer, flute player, clarinet, bassoon player, sax. I, first of all, I think scales 
are about ear training. You have to know how to spell if you're going to be a good writer. You also have to know how to execute a scale. A scale isn't just a mechanical robotic thing. It's a thing of beauty. So you mean more than just sort of mechanically repeating scales. You mean really putting your heart into those scales. Right. I mean, you can play uh, colorful scales. You can play happy scales. You can play sad scales. You can play harsh scales. You can play staccato scales. You can play legato scales. You can play slur scales. You can play scales in thirds. You can play scales in sixths. You can play you know, contrary motion. Um, you can entertain yourself for a long, long time just playing scales. Um, we're surrounded by pianos right now. You think you could demonstrate? Sure. So the typical scale example, I'll just play A major um, on a historic piano, so it's not going to sound terrifically legato, but you'll get the idea. So A major. I do a little crescendo, meaning getting louder to the top and a little bit softer coming down. You can also play that in thirds, so the right hand starts on C-sharp, the left hand starts on A. That wasn't very good. Uh, then you can also play it in sixth, so the left hand would start on C-sharp, and the right hand would start on A, so that's a sixth of interval apart. is to play them in double thirds. So that means the right hand and the left hand are each playing two notes simultaneously and scale. So you can practice that also in six. in the contrary motion. So if I go up, you can spend all day practicing scales and never get bored. Well, I'll never think of scales the same way. Mm. The scales have fallen from my eyes. That was a historic piano. 1868 Paris, Erard. Yeah. Erard was the piano maker, the master. Yeah, the best. Their, their name is spelled E-R-A-R-D. And uh, they were legendary because they, they came up with inventions for the piano that forever changed the way pianos are manufactured. To this day, many of their patents are actually continued on by all the major manufacturers. So their most well-known invention would be the double escapement, which is responsible for our ability to play repeated notes. So the hammer itself rises from its resting position, hits the string, and then normally would go back into resting position. However, in the double escapement, the Erards came up with a way, a spring mechanism, which allows the hammer, instead of returning to the original resting position, it kind of slightly falls back to within maybe an inch or something of the string so that if you hit the note twice, you hit the key twice, the hammer can hit the string without having to travel the full distance. So it's a terrific little mechanism called the double escapement, which allowed Franz Liszt to write transcendental etudes and Ravel to write all those really fiendishly difficult pieces with double notes. Um, and so, you know, to me, that is probably what they're going to be most remembered for. So before the double escapement that you described, the hammer would fall a much greater distance. Yes, it would fall notes, back. Meaning that it was harder to get that hammer back up very quickly. Right. They made it possible to go really fast. Correct. 
because the distance the hammer had to travel, the second strike was much smaller. It's an ingenious thing. If if you look at the older pianos, like the, the striker behind me, which is a Viennese Austrian piano, that has a single escapement action on it. And if you take the action out, it's it's like the same analogy of uh, a 1950 Chevy versus a, a 2010 Chevy. You know, you don't have a catalytic converter. You don't have disc brakes. You know, you don't have all those fancy schmancy electronic things, the GPS. It's It's very basic, the single escapement. So Brahms, for example, who composed a lot of his pieces um, on a single escapement instrument, you're not going to play his music tremendously fast. Although today, I feel a lot of Brahms's music, especially the Rhapsodies, are just played too fast. Hmm. And it's it's beyond the scope of our ability to hear, although we think we can hear that fast, but we really can't. <laughs> so uh, we lose the, the spaciousness between the notes. So the single escapement instruments allow us to have that luxury of listening to the nuance between the notes. And we talk about that a lot, but we're really hard-pressed to show that and demonstrate it unless we have the right equipment. And we have this incredible collection of historic pianos here in the Department of Music as well as at the Beethoven Center. So if we listen to compositions before and after the double escapement, can we see like a huge leap in speedy virtuosity uh, required by the compositions? Yes. I think if you um, put on my CD of Brahms and then you put on my CD of the Ravel, you will notice it very, very clearly in the sound, in the attack of the sound. I think that the Brahms piano, the striker, which is the kind of piano that Brahms owned himself, lends itself really beautifully to the melancholy quality of that piece. And melancholy, I think, is a state of mind that can't be hurried. Um, The Ravel is completely different. It's a very virtuosic kind of music. It's a little bit removed, I would say, emotionally. Some people find Ravel's music cold, although I don't. And so because of the speed of the instrument, the clarity of the instrument, it doesn't allow you to feel like you can get close to it. You don't feel hugged by it. Um, You feel that this is an incredible like Maserati or a Porsche or a very fast vehicle that you can really maneuver. And it's very light, so you can play all kinds of things on it for great lengths of time without injuring yourself. As a matter of fact, Franz Liszt traveled with Erards, and in his letters in the marvelous trilogy that Walker wrote about about uh, Liszt, Liszt said in his letters that he would only travel with an Erard because the lightness and the evenness of the action was really appealing to him. Well, let's do exactly what you suggested, Gwen. Let's contrast two pieces, one before the Erard piano makers invented the double escapement, and one afterwards, using exactly the two composers you mentioned, Brahms. And uh, then we're going to hear from Ravel, who obviously came a little later and, you know, is a whole different universe of, of sound. So introduce this Brahms piece and uh, we'll listen to a little bit of it. So um, I think one of the pieces that would really well illustrate the sort of melancholy quality of the piano and the fact that it's better as a single escapement instrument that you can play slower and enjoy the spaces, is Opus 117, the first one in E-flat major, which is an absolutely gorgeous um, lullaby, really. That's how I think of it, even though it's not called lullaby. And um, if you listen to it, you'll, you'll hear a kind of golden, haunting, slightly nasally quality to the piano. 
Um, and I had this theory about Brahms, and if I could just divert for a second um, before you demonstrate that, it, which is to say that Brahms was really unlucky in his personal life. He, he did not meet and marry and have children and live ha happily ever after, as if that ever happens. But he just didn't have any luck with women. He was in love with Clara Schumann, who was Robert Schumann's widow. He met her when he was very young. I think she was really more of a muse to him, although we will never know because all of their letters were burned. But he remained a bachelor, and he was somewhat, I think, depressed, melancholy. It comes out in his music very clearly. And one of the things that I theorize about and I've discovered and I think is somewhat true, at least for me, is that he never really could say what he felt. I mean, he was not well equipped verbally to express his inner emotions, but musically he was brilliant at it. And one of the things I discovered when I was working on the Brahms was that if I really researched the tenor line or the alto line, but more often the tenor line, I would find the real beauty in the piece. The 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 best lines of the Brahms were not always revealed in the sopranos, but in the tenor lines. And to me, that's a metaphor for hidden feelings um, and an entryway to his inner world. And I'd like to demonstrate that. Do you think you'd like to hear a little bit about that on the striker right now, or would you prefer to play the Opus 117? Oh, golly. Let's have you demonstrate. Okay. So I'm going to demonstrate um, the Opus 118 number two on the striker, which I didn't record on the striker uh, on my late Brahms recordings. That one happens to be on the Arard. But I'm, I'm going to demonstrate it on the striker right now because I want you to be able to hear those tenor lines. So Great. And lest anyone think we're saying S-T-R-I-K-E-R, it is S-T-R-E-I-C-H-E-R, the name of the piano company. Okay, so there's this passage in um, Opus 118, number 2, after the opening, there is a section here I'll play for you once. Robert and Clara, or Brahms and Clara. Did you hear that? It's so beautiful. And it's very difficult to do that on a modern instrument because the strings are all crossing. Whereas here on the striker and on my Erard, all of the strings inside the piano are running parallel to each other. So you hear... You hear that, that wonderful duet. 
And then, you know, when you come back. another layer of music that otherwise might become buried in a modern piano because there's so many overtones and the volume of it is greater the uh, lack of clarity is also more apparent on a modern instrument so suddenly it was as if I was learning or hearing these pieces for the first time from the inside out it was just such a great discovery and then when I started reading about Brahms I realized Maybe for me, at least, it works, the metaphor that these were his secret inner longings or that his message was so buried and he was so emotionally repressed that he put the best things on the inside of the melodic contour. Um, now, on the Erard, let's walk over there. I'll play exactly the same thing. Um, I won't talk now. You'll just listen. And you'll see, also, it's similar, but it has a very different tonal quality. difference in the two. I, I think there's a distinct, it's a little happier sounding, it's a little more light sounding. Um, so to me, that's a tremendous difference that we can learn. Our ears will become accustomed and familiar with these very, very small differences, which create a very great difference in the interpretation of the music. So both those were, um, and I don't know if the right term is uh, straight strung. They don't have that that crossing over right. of strings that right. causes some of those resonances and maybe some of the blurring that you were talking about. So there's a very clean separation of notes. Mm -hmm. But the first one, the striker piano, definitely had a softer, even more melancholy sound to it. It was more mournful, I Mournful, think. yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It had grief in it, yeah. something. It's interesting you talk about not just playing the music, but feeling the soul of Brahms while you do so. Yeah. Uh, I, I, You know, I really think of myself as a medium. I don't think of myself as anything but. You know, it's my job is to understand to the best of my ability what the composer wants through the letters, through reading, through whatever research um, mechanisms I can use. And then looking at the score, really listening to recordings, studying the score, making new discoveries like these tenor lines that I found so delicious, um, trying to make metaphors for myself that make sense. It's a process of discovery and research and wonder. 
Um, and then when you add on top of that the accessibility of these incredible gifts, these instruments which are so gorgeous and have been gifted to us. My Arard is my own. I brought that here when I joined the faculty in 2003. But every single instrument you see in this room right now, Robert, are gifts from people who have heard my concerts, who have listened to my recordings, and who have been looking for a home for their instrument. Um, and we use everything. We, you know, we use them in chamber music concerts. We use them for recordings. My students practice in this room. If they're working on Ravel, Liszt, Brahms, Mendelssohn, Haydn, Beethoven, we put them on historic instruments. This is a unique, unique um, opportunity for our students. And I think they know how lucky they are. Is it weird of me to start thinking as we're surrounded by three of these, or four actually, of these pianos that they're kind of like living things? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's well known that if you take a piano or a violin or any instrument and you don't let it vibrate and you don't play on it, it will die. The instrument will go dead. It's also well known that if you lend an instrument out, for example, I've heard violinists say that they've loaned their prize-winning instrument out to somebody for a couple of weeks or months, and it comes back and it doesn't sound like wow. it, the instrument anymore because whoever's playing it has a different vibratory uh, effect on the instrument, oh a my different God. vibrato. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. So these instruments... They're living. Yeah, they're changing and they're absorbing the imprint of the people who play them. Absolutely. And this Erard that I played, which is mine, was found underwater in a basement in Paris. And it was taken oh. home to Amsterdam by a, a restorer named Fritz Janmat, and he restored it. He found a way to get the soundboard back without replacing it. Now, the soundboard is probably one of the most important parts of the piano. Um, the nature of the sound of the instrument comes from that soundboard. And what he did was he has this huge, like, humidor, um, and he takes the, the soundboard and he keeps it wet, and he slowly, very gradually bends it back into its shape, original shape. So if it's warped or cracked, and then he doesn't put new glue in it. So he tries to let the original glues reactivate, and so everything gets kind of returned to its original form without much interference. So um, this instrument, which was in terrible state, apparently, you know, he he really fixed it. Uh, and I've I've been back to his shop. In fact, I was there on my sabbatical last spring, and I played the instruments that he has, which are extraordinarily beautiful to look at and to play. But I have the best one. Uh, I, I think this is really a special one. I'm totally aghast at what you're saying because I'm looking at this piano. I don't know what the wood is. It's a veneer. It's yeah. a veneer, but yeah. it's what cherry or some other beautiful some, some, wood. Yeah, some walnut. Like it looks gorgeous. This was nice. underwater. Yeah. For how yeah. long? I don't know, but he found it. It was kind of a wreck, um, and it was in pieces. And and the problem with these old instruments, I'll say, is that more often than not, you find them in stately homes like Downton Abbey, and they're being used for roses and photographs or something. Right, right. Um, Lord Mountbatten's on it or something, but. What they really need and want is to be played. And then you have to find people who can repair them and who can restore them. And not everyone is um, adequate to the task. You said earlier that playing these compositions was in part figuring out or being responsive to what the composer was trying to do, what the composer wanted you to do. In the case of Brahms, 
I mean, aside from the technical aspects of the composition, do you think he wanted us to sense that melancholy vantage on life, his disappointments, Absolutely. but also the consolations of music? Because there's mm -hmm. something that comes through that music that says, woe is me, but no, there's this, there's this, right? Beauty. Absolutely. I, you're so good that I'd give you an A for that interpretation. I, I think one of the really amazing things about these last four opus numbers, opus 116, 117, 118, and 119, when Brahms wrote those pieces, um, he'd already announced to people that he was done composing. He wasn't going to compose anymore. And yet he, I guess, changed his mind. And he produced these four sets of incredible pieces. They're all relatively short, but they are so compact and intensely uh, loaded emotionally. It's an old man looking back on his life with regret, with joy, with happiness, with sadness, with grief, with longing, with love, um, with abandonment. There's so much information in these pieces. I have a great, great friend uh, who told me that he would never record these uh, last four works because he said they're so depressing he would commit suicide. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I know. No. I said to him, you've got to be kidding. I think they're the most beautiful pieces. They're but uplifting. They're, well, in a way. to be truthful, I was kind of depressed for the better part of six months while working on this. And I think it started getting to me. You know, I, I think I started to really feel all of the, the the characters and the feelings and the emotions that he was having and when he wrote these pieces and it was starting to get to me. On the other hand, my my latest CD, which is called Legacy, the Spirit of Beethoven, I was just having a riot of a time. It was joyous music, fun music, almost kind of spoofy at times. And then there are pieces on it that are quite serious, like the Mendelssohn Varias no Serious and you know, I'd say the Andufarni Galipta is a very serious piece of music. It's it's really about true love. Um, but for the most part, it's a happy album. Mm. And I had a really joyous time making it. You know, um, technological futurists and people who call themselves transhumanists talk a lot about encoding the state of a mind and then uploading it somewhere and reproducing it elsewhere. But, you know, music has been doing that forever, right? So right. your melancholy was reproducing Brahms's melancholy more than a hundred years after the fact. Well, you know, that's the point. I, I you know, I keep telling my students, like, why are you nervous for a recital? It's not about you, it's about the music. You know, you're serving the music. If you just keep remembering that you're a servant to the music, you're not gonna get nervous. If you've done your due diligence, if you've mastered, you know, the really difficult passages, if you've if you've done your studying and your reading and you've done your comparative listening and all of that you should feel it's a great privilege to be chosen to play this music. That's kind of how I feel. And it sounds kind of cheesy to say it, but it takes a certain burden off of me. I would not want to be a composer playing my own music, frankly. I'm delighted to be the muse or the medium for other people. Um, I've had works written for me. I've had people write me piano concertos and and smaller works. And that's terrific. But there's a certain kind of responsibility that you carry with you. Now, Brahms and Ravel have been well recorded. I mean, we have great interpreters of this music. And so what I want to bring to it is something a little different. And I think the, the pianos themselves are 
really my teacher. They're the ones that taught me how to listen and what to listen for. And I also say this to many people. It's like the difference between, let's suppose in life, the only kind of car you could drive, okay, was a Toyota Camry. And there was nothing else on the road. You couldn't drive anything else on the road. That was all that was available to you. You would not know how it would feel to drive anything else. So that's the same thing with pianos. If we only play modern pianos, we would not appreciate anything that came before them. We promised a little while back that we would contrast the Brahms with the more modern, faster, <laughs> and you said maybe maybe a little less... Um, a little less personal, maybe. A little less personal. A little less intimate. Ravel. And um, I came in here wanting to have you play... One of the scariest uh, piano compositions around for pianists, uh, <laughs> infamous piece by Ravel, part mm-hmm. of uh, Gaspard de la Nuit. Is it what is it a suite? What do you what do you call that thing? Well, I would call it a triptych. Triptych. Yeah. And this is the infamous movement called Scarbo. Yeah. So Gwen, should I play your recording or do you? Yes, want to... <laughs> play my recording. <laughs> I didn't think you'd want to go and attempt <laughs> no, that's that live. not fair. You have to give me fair warning, <laughs> like a year to practice it. So just an excerpt there from Scarbo, a movement from Gaspard de la Nuit by Ravel, played by Gwendolyn Mach. On the 1868 Erard. On her own 1868 Erard piano, and off of an album uh, where you did all of Ravel's piano works, uh, Ravel Revealed. Mm-hmm. I think our listeners can tell why that is a scary, scary piece to tackle. Uh, there's stuff going on in there that the normal ear can't even pick out. Tell yeah. us about that. Each piece is accompanied by a poem by Aloysius Bertrand. And the Scarbo piece is really about a poltergeist that is appearing and disappearing in front of somebody and is terrorizing that person. And that's how it feels to play that piece. It feels like the poltergeist is on the keyboard and you're trying to grab it. Uh, it's not a, a, a piece that uh, one just saunters out and plays. Unless maybe you're Lang Lang or something. I don't know. I, I think it scares everybody. When did you first play it? I first played it in graduate school when I was at Stony Brook. And then I worked on it for a couple of years, actually. Um, and luckily for the recording, I just was able to do it like in two takes. How long did you practice? Uh, I don't know. I can't even tell you. It would be an accumulation of years, probably. I don't know. What's the hardest thing in that composition to perform? Surprisingly, it's not the repeated notes, especially if you play on an Erard. For me, the hardest thing on that piece is to really 
achieve the dynamic demands of that piece. There's so many of them. Because a poltergeist appears and disappears, there's crescendo and then diminuendo, like sudden, very sudden diminuendos, because it disappears very quickly. So it's it feels schizophrenic to play that piece because you're not really allowed to crescendo for very long because right on the other end of it is a sudden diminuendo, you know. So for me, that that has to be the hardest thing. I mean, there's just so much technical challenge in those fast notes and this, the odd rhythms and counterpoints and things in there. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Very difficult. But it's incredible. It's both beautiful and challenging. I mean, it's gorgeous, too. I don't know. Did you read the poems uh, before you listened to the piece? I did not. I haven't gotten around to reading the poems. I would do that and see how you feel about it afterwards. Because Ravel was um, a great admirer of Edgar Allan Poe. And, you know, I think that Poe was not famous, certainly not uh, celebrated in his own country, although he was very celebrated in Europe, in Paris. And so I think Ravel was highly influenced by the writing of Poe or the writing of Bertrand and trying to create a musical equivalent to those poems. And it's chilling. Like the middle movement is Le Gibet, which is about the noose. Yeah, the uh, the, the gibbet is the mm-hmm. scaffold, right? Right. Um, also a really technically challenging movement, yeah. Very difficult, <laughs> yeah. So you are well known for your recordings of Ravel. You seem to have taken a liking to him or formed a relationship with him early in your career, and now you're known as an interpreter of Ravel. You know, I don't know about known, but, you know, I certainly think that I made it an early priority of mine. Um when I was already well-established, performing a lot with orchestras, major orchestras all over the world, I was given an opportunity to study with Vlado Perlmutter, who was Ravel's authentic student, shall I say, because a lot of people claim they studied with Ravel, may have had two lessons, and then went around saying they were Ravel's student. Vlado was really um, an authentic student. He studied with Ravel for a long, long time, all the works. And then in his late 80s, when he was 89, I met him and he chose me to be his last student to whom he was going to teach everything he knew about Ravel. And, and I he went... was Ravel's last living student. So you're part of a lineage. I am yeah. part of a lineage. It's like, like the granddaughter of Ravel or something. Wow. You know, it's sort of interesting. But Vlado, you know, was a very well-known Lithuanian pianist. Um, He studied with Ravel when he was relatively young, and he made a career of performing Ravel and teaching Ravel all over the world. He was at the Toho School. He taught in America as well. I think he was in New York. Uh, He taught at the Paris Conservatoire. He was legendary. And so I got a grant from the French Ministry of Culture, which was really great. And I went to Paris for half a year from New York. I was living in New York at the time. And every month I would go and study uh, Ravel with Vlado, and we would work on a very specific piece of music. And he would yell. Um, (laughs) He would take out the manuscript and show me what Ravel wrote, and he would demonstrate. And it, it was intense lessons. Um, they were always at six o'clock. They were always at his apartment on Rue en Père. Um, I always arrived with flowers or chocolates or something nice. Um, I waited for him in the ante room. He'd come in, I'd kiss his hand, we'd go into the room and we'd have a lesson for two hours. It was really amazing. It was a great opportunity. I would think there'd be a lot of people who would have been in line uh, for that passing of the torch from one of 
the 20th century's greatest composers. How did you get the nod, huh? Well, I was lucky. I mean, sometimes it's just being in the right place at the right time. I was brought by Gavin Henderson, who was at that time the director of the Darlington International Summer School, which is just so terrific. Um, and Velado was there, and he invited me, Gavin invited me to be Velado's assistant. Um, sadly, for most of the students who came from Japan and around the world to study with Vlado, they got stuck with me and not Vlado because Vlado at that age could only teach about six students that week. And there were maybe 40. So I was stuck with 34 students to teach. So I very dutifully attended all of his master's classes. I never had a lesson with him. I didn't really know who he was. And then I realized on day two, this is somebody I really should be studying with, frankly. So I was invited by Gavin because he heard my recording of Ravel's G Major Piano Concerto with the Philharmonia with Jeffrey Simon conducting on Color Records. And I think he thought I'd be a good fit for Velado. Oh, okay. So you'd already recorded the concerto. Yeah. I was thinking it'd be nice to play a little bit of that uh, concerto. Yeah, I Maybe think it'd be great. Yeah, you should movement. play that. Yeah. it's on. It, they just re-released it a couple years ago on Surround Sound, so it sounds fantastic. Great. Let's play just a bit of the first movement of Ravel's Piano Concerto in G. In I would major. actually play the second movement if I were Oh, you. would you? Because the second movement of the Ravel Piano Concerto is uh, most famous for its cadenza. It starts with a solo piano part that has one of the longest single phrases ever written. I would play that because you really just hear piano for the beginning, and then the English horn comes in, and it's it, it's just so stunningly beautiful. Not one note is out of place. Perfect.
That was the opening of the second movement of Ravel's Piano Concerto in G Major. Right, with the Philharmonia Orchestra of London and Jeffrey Simon conducting on Cala Records. And Gwendolyn Mach on piano. Yeah. So when you apprenticed yourself to Perlmutter, were you like, were you nervous? No, I wasn't nervous. What I decided was I was just going to check my ego at the door every time I walked in his house. And I was just going to take in as much information as I could get, like a sponge. He wasn't uh, particularly forgiving, so he he didn't (laughs) want me to record the lesson. (laughs) So I really had to pay attention um, to every single thing that he was saying. And I have a really good memory. My husband accuses me of having a memory like an elephant. But what I would do after every lesson is I would go down to a Chinese restaurant, which was right around the corner from his apartment, and I would sit in the corner. I would order the same thing every single time for like five days in a row. And I would sit there with my little book and I'd write everything down. This measure, he said that. This measure, he said that. And I would number the measures and I would annotate every single little thing that he said. And I have a book at home that is, it consists of my notes, my lessons with Vlado. There is another book called Ravel Après Ravel, which Vlado himself, he was interviewed by, and I can't remember who the pianist was, but by a pianist. And in that book, he highlights some of the things that he talked about with me. But my notes, my diary is very, very detailed. And of course, it's specific to my issues uh, with playing Ravel. Um, It wasn't easy for me to do that because I was already a well-established pianist. I was traveling around the world playing concerts with major orchestras. But when you have an opportunity like this to study with someone who's one step away from the greatest composer, you know, the best thing to do is just to realize you know nothing and he knows everything and you're just going to sit there and let him share with you what he feels you deserve to know. And now, 20 years later, I feel like I am responsible for passing that information on now to my students or to anyone who cares to listen. So are you, um, well, at least what they call in constitutional law, an originalist, a believer that you really want to capture exactly the intent of the composer and not mess around with it and modernize it and reinterpret it. Yeah, I, I do believe that. I think that's very well put. I think, you know, Ravel himself was a, was a pretty terrible pianist, so you're not going to really <laughs> learn much from listening to him play. It's I was like wondering about that. Clunking yeah. around, my God. <laughs> um, and there weren't definitive <laughs> recordings of his works that no. he blessed, you know, that said, this is exactly... How it mm-hmm. should be done. Exactly. So it has to come from someone like Perlmutter and now you. Exactly. And so contrast that with Rachmaninoff, for example, who who was an incredible pianist and you can listen to just the most fantastic recordings of Rachmaninoff. I, I think that is, for me, you know, that's the benchmark. You know, we should try to, to match that. Um, and yet, to my great surprise, I hear Rachmaninoff played a lot, way too heavy, way too fast. If you listen to the Ormandy recordings of Rachmaninoff, which are so fabulous, it's light, it's transparent, it's fleeting playing. It's not heavy, bombastic, you know, pound your way down to the basement kind of playing. So I I really think that we should do our best. Um, And that's why I like to work with contemporary composers because they're there. You know, they're saying, no, Gwenny, I don't like the way you did that. Can you do it this way? and, you know, I was really looking for that color. I was really looking for that mood. Can you try this? You know, to me, that's one of the great privileges of 
of a co-creation. You know, you really feel like you're partnering somebody. Maybe they can't play the piano. You know, maybe they they need you to play the piano so they can realize something great. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. I don't have any recordings of you playing contemporary music. No. Oh. No. I'm a lot of stuff. I've got you playing Mendelssohn, Beethoven, <laughs> Ravel, Brahms. Um, Saint-Saëns. Saint-Saëns, yeah. Oh, yeah, you got that one? Yeah. Um, if you go and I did uh, four volumes of Stravinsky with Robert Kraft uh-huh. and the Orchestra of St. Luke's. Um, I recorded with John Adams. I've also recorded with Oster Piazzolla. Oh, wow. That was unbelievable. Yeah, get a hold of that. Ah! <laughs> Wow. That's with the Orchestra of St. Luke's. We recorded a concerto for piano, bandonia, and harp. So it wasn't a tango, or was it? Three tangos we recorded okay. was for orchestra, for piano, harp, and bandonian. It was all Pe- Piazzolla's original works. And I'll tell you, that was one of the most amazing experiences of my life because I listened to tango music, Argentinian tango music, but it's more for dancing. This is not dancing mm-hmm, music. Mm-hmm. And Astor himself is just one of the... Well, he was one of the greatest, I think, um, interpreters of that medium. The violence really came yes. through in that music. Well, and he was a tough guy, right? He was. Yeah, he was a tough guy. And people think of him as Argentinian, but he... He's from New York. New York. Yeah, he's yeah. a New Yorker. Exactly. He could talk like this, I think. Um, and when we did the record launch at the Beacon Theater in New York, people were like throwing... You know, their undergarments onto the stage. <laughs> it was hilarious. It was just such a riot. Um, and Lalo Schifrin was conducting, and it was just so much fun. Uh, well, let's agree um, that you will give me um, one of your recordings with Piazzolla, and then maybe I can uh, append it to this interview because I'm sure people will want to oh, yeah. hear it. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. We said that uh, Piazzolla is a New Yorker. You are too. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tell me about your beginnings as a pianist. Well, my beginnings as a pianist was before I was born, actually. Uh, I know that sounds a little strange, but my parents are Chinese. I'm Chinese-American, and they name you before you're born. So in my case, they named Ma Can Play the Piano. I wish they said my name was Ma Can Make a Lot of Money, but it wasn't. So it was Ma Can Play the Piano. Wait, wait, wait. That. That Seriously. was your name, really? Yeah. Before Mock you were born. Cochin. Yeah, before I was born. So they were figuring out your career for you uh, that early? I think they were having a wish that I would I would be a gifted musician because my parents were both musicians. My mother um, is a singer. She was trained at the Juilliard School. And my father was an amateur viola player and violinist. And they loved, they were like crazy about music. So they were, I think, hoping for this... <laughs> magical child, maybe a pianist who could accompany them or something, you know, child labor, I don't know. And so my name is Mak Ko Chin. Ko means can, Chin means piano. And my brother's name is Mak Ko Wen, which means can write. My brother is a screenwriter. It's very interesting. Um, That's not to say that, you know, they weren't dragon parents and they weren't (laughs) like whatever, but I was gifted, I guess. When I was born, I had perfect pitch. I went to the piano at the age of two. At the age of five, they took me to Juilliard for an audition. I 
completely flunked it. Um, I was scared of the person auditioning me. I think she had some kind of a thing. I don't know what it was. I didn't want to play for her. Um, and so at the age of six, six and a half, my parents took me back and I started Juilliard with Yo-Yo Ma. He was like seven and a half and I was six and a half. And we went to school together for many, many years. And Yo-Yo went to Harvard and I went to Yale. So how about that? Do you keep up? No. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> we Isn't ran away from each other most of the time. Seems like a nice guy. He's very nice. No, I think I I think, you know, we'd get along, but it was never meant to be. Wow. He went to Harvard. What can I tell you? I went to Yale. End of story. And by the way, I read that you majored in both music and psychology, which yeah. is perfect for someone who's trying to get in the heads of the composers oh, yeah. the way you do. Absolutely. I, I I think that really helped, you know, it was very interesting. Um so you took to it like a fish to water. I mean, I guess. I mean, you said you walked up to the piano at age of two, and by yeah. five you were doing, or six, was it five or six, doing additions at Juilliard. Yeah, I went to uh, Juilliard. It was fun. As a kid. I was a baby, yeah. I went Junior from Juilliard. six to pre-college, it's called, yeah. It's uh -huh. still there. I went there from age six to 18, and then I went to Yale University, and I went from Yale to Stony Brook and got a doctoral degree. So never any second thoughts about what you wanted to do. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? Oh, yeah? So like what? Of course. You know, I think you can tell I'm kind of a, a head case. Like, I, you know, I'm curious about things. I'm interested in people. I love museums. I went, drove around the world in a car race, in a vintage car race in 2000. I read a lot. Um, I think, I, you know... I could have been many things. You know, I could have been a lawyer. I would have been interested in patent law, I think. I would have been a surgeon if I could be, if I could have passed organic chem. I think I would have been a surgeon because um, I'm good with my hands. I love art. I'd won some awards as a child for a painting that I'd done. And to this day, I am crazy about art. I go to museums all the time. So there, there could have been many other things. And I think I resented the fact that, you know, I was so railroaded. I felt railroaded into this thing. And then after Stony Brook, um, I had some time to think about it. I, I, you know, I had success early on. And I think the one thing that I realize about being a musician is that it's such a rich life. I travel a lot. I meet a lot of great people. I get to go to museums. I collaborate with people. I love chamber music. I mean, why wouldn't anybody want to be a musician, you know, unless they could be something else? <laughs> but you could have been a patent lawyer. I could have been a patent lawyer. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I love cooking. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about this vintage car race around the world. Oh, my God. That was the most impossible thing I've ever done. I was invited to join a vintage car race, the first ever timed rally around the world in 80 days from London to London. And it took place May 1st, 2000. And then 80 days later, we returned to London. And a very close friend of mine, Janet, called me. She's English. In a panic about three weeks before the race was to begin. So it was like April 7th. And she said, Gwenny, everyone I've invited to join the race, my co-drivers have all dropped out. And I'm looking for drivers. And I said, I'm not a driver. I'm a pianist. And she said, I'll give you any part of the race that you want. 
And I and I had just gotten married. I was like a five-month newlywed. And I said, no, I'm not so sure about this. I don't think Rick would like me to go. And she said, please, please. And I looked at Rick. And Rick was a bachelor. You know, when I married him, he was a bachelor. And I think he really wanted his bachelorhood back. So he said, please go on this trip. <laughs> so I said, okay, you're okay with that. I'm okay. It's going to be five weeks. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I picked the Silk Road. So I drove from oh, Istanbul wow. to Beijing. In what? In 30 days. Yeah, but in what kind of Oh, in a 1940 Chevy with a Fangio coupe wheel. Alone? No, no, with Janet. Two with girls. Janet. Okay. So we drove from, I met her in Istanbul, and we drove all the way through Istanbul, went across the Caspian Sea. There were like 78 cars. Um, then we drove through Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> Not Afghanistan, thank God. Um, And then we drove from Kashkar, Western China, Xinjiang, all the way across China, you know, through the Taklamon Desert. And we didn't know any better. I mean, what do we know? We could have been in Taliban country. What the heck? We were We're, two women in this red Chevy. Were you just going as fast as possible the whole time? No, no. That's not the point of a rally. Obviously, you haven't done a rally. But the rally is you're you're (laughs) trying to get from point A to B, um, and you have four checkpoints or three checkpoints, and you have to calculate based on the vintage of your car and your skill how long it's going to take you to get from point A to B in those four checkpoints. So if you if you check in early or late, you get points off. And I'm happy to report that we came in sixth from London to Beijing with no accidents. And then she t- picked up some other drivers from Beijing to London. But it was a great... You know what I learned from that trip? Can I just tell you the thing that I learned about? What I learned that was so important in my life was that people are good because theoretically you could have been killed on that trip at any given time but people were good um strangers wouldn't invite us to their homes we were sitting in a gas station with a bunch of turkish guys eating their lunch um some mongolians were celebrating the one-year birthday of a grandson and they invited us down into the field we couldn't communicate with them they were hugging us it was a riot I mean, one night we were trying to get gasoline from this gas station in the middle of nowhere, and the hose kept coming out of the main machine, so all the gasoline was on the floor, and we could have blown up any minute. And, you know, we were walking to the office where the guys were sitting there with their AK-47s and a single light bulb, and nobody shot us. Um, so your definition of good is people who don't kill you. Uh, but yes, but they also welcome you. It wasn't mm. just the killing. It was that they, they, they liked us and they wanted to embrace us. When did your concert career start? Oh, man. I started playing concerts when I was seven, you know, at Juilliard. They had us up there, you know, every semester. And I think when you're a scholarship student, you're obliged to play. I think that's what it was. I was a scholarship student there. Do you remember what your first performance was? Mm. No. I just remember Yo-Yo was before me, and it was just <laughs> such a tough act to follow. So annoying. <laughs> he and his sister would get up there, and he'd play like Dvorak Concerto, and I'd come up and play Three Blind Mice. I don't know. It was very sad. <laughs> oh, well, it's good you got out of that guy's shadow, huh? I'm telling you. That wouldn't have worked. <laughs> oh, man. And then he... um. He has the nerve to come out with his Silk Road album after you've already driven the Silk well, Road. Well, yeah, see, I'm much cooler than you. Yeah, yeah. He just plays the music, but I drive the road. <laughs> uh, Gwendolyn, can we uh, maybe hear a little more music? Um, and I'm sure. not sure what to suggest. You know, the Legacy album, which just came out, features two new instruments, which you might want 
the listeners to hear. Okay. This is uh, Legacy, the Spirit of Beethoven mm-hmm. is the name of the album. And uh, why don't you pick what we're going to hear? Well, <laughs> there are two things I think you should play. One is a bit of the first movement of the Beethoven Opus 2, number two. Why? Because I recorded that on a 1985 um, reproduction of a 1795 Dulkin. And Beethoven wrote his piece in 1794, and or maybe the other way around. He wrote it in 1795, and it's a 1794 reproduction. Never mind. It's a year off. But it's so delightful on that historic piano. Um, again, the character of the instrument is so winning and so joyful and so amusing that it brings this Opus 2-2 to life. And it's such a fantastic sonata because it's one of the earliest sonatas that he wrote. And, you know, Louis was not what I would call a child prodigy. Louis van Beethoven was a late bloomer. Um, He didn't really start writing until he was in his 20s. And at this point, he was supposed to be studying with Haydn. And we're not quite sure what their relationship was like. I can't tell if he liked Haydn, but he studied with Albersberger at the same time. But you can hear the Haydn in this piece. It's just all over the piece. And um, so I would highly recommend you play track one of Legacy. We'll play a little bit of that. The other thing I, I'd like to encourage you to play, actually, is the Cherny <laughs> uh, first fantasy on motives of Beethoven. This is a mashup of Beethoven's greatest works. And they're not even all piano works. Some of them are symphonies. Some of them are string quartets. Um, You have quotations from the Woodwind Quintet with piano. You have the choral fantasy. You have the third piano concerto. And Cherny mashes it up, and he connects it with incredibly difficult virtuoso scales and arpeggios and all kinds of show-off passages. And it's fantastic. And no one knows it because it was published in a penny magazine. Well, first things first, the Beethoven, Mm -hmm. uh, an excerpt from the first movement, right? First movement of Opus 2, number 2, A Major Sonata.
So, so Gwen, that again was you playing? Beethoven's Sonata in A Major, Opus 2-2, first movement. From your latest album, uh, Legacy, The Spirit of Beethoven. So you recommended that we then, and by the way, this is Gwendolyn Mock, who's talking to me, Robert Polly, here on the 7th Avenue Project. And you recommended we go to another piece from the same album, but this by the composer Cherney. I don't think most people know him. Oh, yeah. And if you have any pianist... The pianists you know, know him. They know him because he wrote like 800 exercises. This <laughs> poor man. He had no etudes life. Etudes of various kinds? or Little etudes, little exercises, little pieces. But this one that you recommended is a mashup. A mashup. It's a mashup, a combination of all of Beethoven's greatest hits. It's, it's a complete riot. And what's it called? It's called The First Fantasy Based on Beethoven Motives. Great. Now we're going to hear a bit of that. And on an 1823 Broadwood, which is an English historic piano. Is that piece more than just a novelty tune? I think it's a really fine piece of music. Although, you know, as I said, Cherney was Beethoven's most famous student. He met Beethoven when he was 10. Um, and he made his living as a teacher and writing exercises for his millions of students. And he sat in the window of a publishing house writing these etudes, and then in the evening he would teach students. And he had no life, really. He never married. And then Franz Liszt was brought to Czerny when Franz Liszt was 10 years old or 11 years old, and he played 
for Cherney, and Cherney taught him for a year. And supposedly Liszt met Beethoven. Um, there's this controversy about whether there was this consecrated kiss on Liszt's forehead. Goodness knows. <laughs> but in any case, um, Liszt, I think, probably most likely uh, got a lot of his technical ideas and, and his foundation from Cherney. Gwen, you don't know this, but I've already quoted you once on this radio show. Yes, uh, because you um, were featured in a book by Sarah Solovich called Playing Scared, (laughs) um, A History and Memoir of Stage Fright. I love Sarah. (laughs) Sarah's a writer and a... um, Yeah. She she's a, a a pianist, but who who has had really terrible stage fright much of her life, mm-hmm. and the book is about sort of coping with that and yeah. uh, and still, you know, finding a way to play despite that. Um, she being a friend of yours, she consulted you, and you said a number of memorable things in that book. But the one that I quoted was this: the worst thing anyone can do at a concert is play accurately. It's boring as hell. Um, I found that very endearing, but. Um, <laughs> A pretty radical idea for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. To play accurately is boring. You know, if you want something really accurate, you can just download it into a computer and have the computer play it for you. (laughs) I mean, we have the ability now to do that. I mean, we've created machines that can replicate those things. But for me, what brings music to life is the interpretive aspect of it. It's that each and every one of us, I can teach two students the same piece and it will sound really different. On, in each hand. Um, I think that as a teacher, one of the things that I really strive is to capture the strengths in each of my students and to let them run with those strengths. So let's say two of my students right now are working on Chopin's Ballade Number no. 4. They're really different people, you know, and I want them to stretch and find what that piece means to them and have them play it and play it differently. So one is an interpretation by this person and one is an interpretation by that person. I mean, that's what makes the CDs go around. I mean, why buy more than one version of a Chopin ballade if they're all being played the same way? So so not striving for the platonic ideal of a Chopin composition, but putting your personality into it. Absolutely, yeah. I think personality is it's inevitable. I mean, the co- the personality of the composer has been created in the piece. I mean, like here we've just been talking about Brahms's melancholy um, and Ravel's precision. And so it goes hand in hand, I mean, for lack of a better metaphor. I mean, if you're going to play something, you better put something of yourself into it. Otherwise, the thing will be absolutely boring. And if all you're striving for is to play the right notes... Don't play it. So after all that work, learning at the knee of a Ravel student, all that work trying to find out what Ravel really wanted it to sound like, did you then go and superimpose Gwendolyn Mock on top of that? You know, it's like cooking. This is how I see it. In the beginning, when I'm first learning a really complicated recipe, I really follow it to the Mm. letter. Okay, and I'll cook it that way 10 times. After that, I'll gain enough confidence that I can add my own ingredients. So another metaphor I think which is really useful is I feel like when I'm a guest of a country, you know, and I'm going there for the first time, I'm just exploring and learning about it. The next time I go back, I know my favorite restaurants, the favorite streets, favorite stores. And then the third time I go there and I live there for a while, I feel like I belong. That's how I feel when I learn music. It's the same process. First time through... You're just visiting. Second time through, you feel a little more familiar. Third time through, you start to bring some of your own 
you know, uh, character into the piece. That's how it goes. So when you said playing accurately is boring, you don't mean making mistakes is a good thing. You know, it's interesting to talk about this because I remember hearing a concert of Yo-Yo, and I don't know why we're talking about Yo-Yo so much. This is really sad. I didn't bring it up. I don't know. <laughs> Believe me. But I remember hearing Yo-Yo play a concert with Maniacs, and it was absolutely spectacular. But it was, in my opinion, although I love his playing, it was a little bit... Too perfect. It was a little too perfect. And then he suddenly slipped and played a wrong note or something went wrong or he had a memory slip. And I remember after that memory slip, it became riveting. And I think it was like Yo-Yo suddenly felt like, oh, you know, I'm not perfect. Yo-Yo slipped. And then he started to really focus and play. And it was amazing. I was on the edge of my seat till the end of the concert. And I love their playing. I think Manny, I just heard him play Emperor and it's just phenomenal playing. But that was a very memorable moment for me, hearing him slip. Have you ever screwed up badly in a concert? Oh gosh, of course. Like, Many times. What was the best or worst? <laughs> okay, I'll tell you the absolute most unbelievable mistake I made was I think I was playing with I can't remember. It may have been a community orchestra, but I was playing a Mozart piano concerto in the second movement. I came in wrong, and I beautifully started to put my finger down, and I played the note, and I realized it was completely wrong, and I beautifully removed my finger and put it in my lap as if it was perfectly intended. Fake it till you make it. I pretty much faked it till I made it through that section. <laughs> and most people won't notice, you know, only the no, the real people, cognoscenti will ever know. Yeah, most people thought I was just being silly. I remember seeing a, a concert by Julian Bream. Uh, oh, I love Julian Bream. Yeah, but he really screwed up on a very famous piece. Really? Uh, yeah, Cordoba. Ooh. And uh, I know the piece well enough. And so I did love a that piece. Couple, me too, yeah. A couple of friends who played classical guitar uh, knew the piece quite well. We all looked at each other like, my God. But the crowd at Zellerbach, they didn't notice a thing. No. And, you know, <laughs> I, I did play another great moment in my life was I played, and I'll never do this again, but I played four nights consecutive performances of Gershwin's Concerto Enough and Rhapsody in Blue which is a killer performance. So by the fourth performance, I was like a sandwich in search of a picnic. I didn't know which way was up. I was like upside down. And I remember looking over at the conductor and he was shaking his head back and forth like, no, 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 no. And I thought, oh crap, I've come in at the wrong place. So I stopped playing because he was like shaking his head. No, 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 no. And he turned around and looked at me in shock and horror, and the orchestra went, eek. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and then he looked at me, and then I looked at him, and I started to play again in that spot. And then it just sounded like a traffic jam. Everything was wrong. And he said, start again, third movement. So we started it again. And do you know, by the time I finished it, and I was like really determined. I was not going to get lost and I was going to finish this thing. The audience, I got the loudest ovation standing over. People were screaming. 
And afterwards, I came off stage, and my husband came running backstage, and he said, that was amazing. And I said, that was a mess. And he said, no, you wouldn't believe it. He said, I was in the audience, and the whole audience was like rooting for you. You could feel them going, you can do it, Gwen, you can do it, Gwen, you can do it, Gwen, you can do it. It was like hilarious. They went nuts. They knew I messed up because we had to stop. But Yeah, well, that's the way I am. When I watch a performer, I am on their side. Absolutely. And and any mistake would endear them to me. Totally. Because uh, you're human. If they, especially if they overcome it, you know, and they get uh, make yeah. it through the piece. Yeah. Um, what keeps you going? Do you feel as though you're still striving for something you haven't quite gotten to yet? Is there some magical ideal that you're working toward? Yeah. I mean, I'm lucky. I play the piano. I mean, it's got, there's tons and tons of music that I haven't played or touched and also, I'm, I love teaching. I, I'm so fortunate. I, I'm one of these people that just, I don't know, I'm lucky. You know, I, I got to play with all these major orchestras. I traveled around the world. I got to stay with Vlado. I drove a car in a race. And then I got recruited to come here to teach. And I, I have just the greatest students. I love these students. They're genuine. They're talented. They're fun. They feel... I think really genuinely appreciative. You know, they don't feel any, there's no feeling of entitlement. Like, oh, well, I'm, you owe me. I'm the next best thing since Van Cliburn or whatever. I, I really enjoy teaching because I feel part of teaching for me is an extension of all the knowledge that I have. And I sometimes don't even know what I know and it plops out. And um, I also enjoy creating courses. For example, I teach a course here on performance anxiety and I work with the psychology department. I also teach a course on the anatomy of the piano, on the anatomy of pianists. You know, we, we look for the first four to five weeks about on the body, the skeleton, the muscles. Wow. Are there pieces that you play just for yourself? That uh... Jazz. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah, I do. I play Bill Evans. Oh, well, he was sort of classical in his way, right? You know, I have to say, I learned most of my voicing from him. Really? Mm-hmm. Well. He was a genius. Yeah to me um well I, I was asking because i thought it'd be nice to end with you playing again not just, bill evans well, not bill evans maybe not no. not waltz for debbie, debbie that's my oh, favorite piece me too. oh it's so tender <laughs> uh, uh but uh anything of your choice that you play just for your own pleasure mm. you know i think one of the most beautiful pieces um it's just like a little gem is a Ravel piece that he wrote called Prelude. And it's a minute and 13 minutes. And he wrote it for a little girl who won the competition. It was a it was a competition for the Paris Conservatory. And all the kids got to play it. And whoever played it best won. And her name is Jeanne Lulu. And I think it's a sweet piece to end the program. That'd be great. Thanks so much, Gwen. It's been wonderful talking to you. Oh, I can talk to you forever. And we share a lot of good taste. <laughs> <laughs> in music. <laughs> so that's great. Gwendolyn Mock is the coordinator of keyboard studies at the School of Music and Dance at San Jose State University. Her latest album is Legacy, The Spirit of Beethoven, just out from MSR Classics. And Gwen will be performing a CD launch concert this coming Saturday, February 27th, at the Beethoven Center in the MLK Library at San Jose State. That's at 2 p.m., this coming Saturday. Admission is free, but seating is limited. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project. And uh, as promised, we're going to finish up with the recording I made of Gwen playing Ravel's Prelude. Actually, I made uh, two recordings, the first in conventional fashion with the mics uh, pointed under the open lid of the piano, 
And then Gwen suggested a second recording. You know, I want you to just try a little experiment. Okay. Just indulge me for a minute. Sure, absolutely. Lie under the piano with the mic. Okay, great. I'm serious. There's a little pad there you can lie on. Okay. I may need to adjust volume levels if I'm going to record. I don't even know what it sounds like. My husband says it's the greatest sound. So I clambered under the piano, and let me just say, dear listeners, that surround sound ain't got nothing on that experience. As Gwen began to play, I thought back to her description of herself as a medium and how apt that is, the idea of music as transmigration. Here was a piece of the soul of the late Maurice Ravel and maybe a little bit of uh, Flado Perlmutter too, and certainly a lot of Gwen Mock, all channeled through her and also through that 150-year-old piano, itself resurrected after drowning in a Paris basement. And all that transmitted blessedly, to me, lying there like a kid cradled in music. And of course, it doesn't end there, because you, my friends, are next in line. ¶¶ 